welcome to the FE Research Podcast with Joe and Alistair, a podcast that aims to shine a light on the practitioner inquiry, scholarship and research being carried out within further education. And that comes from a place of often fear, scarcity, because there is never enough time, there's precarity of contracts and all of that stuff. So actually to open up your mind to think about doing something messy is really difficult and research if it's any good has got to be messy as well. Welcome to the FE Research Podcast. My name is Joe Fletcher Saxon, and uh, my partner in crime is it's Alistair Smith. Hello, Joe. How are you? How are you, Alistair? Not bad. You? I'm okay. So uh, we are recording this post lockdown. Actually, in my area, we're back in lockdown. But you know what I mean. It's the end of August. Um, how's your summer been? It's been really nice because I set myself out the challenge to do lots of reading. So I've managed to fulfill that. That was the main goal and we've got there. Didn't quite get the holiday we planned for, but uh, at least we've got some books read. Yeah, actually, um, our guest today, who I won't name yet, is responsible for two of the books we've read together. Ah, yeah. Well, you did get some holiday, um, but you included some reading with it as well, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so... And what we've got uh, happening today is um, a podcast that's part of what, what we've called, we've christened our long listen editions, which is basically anything over 30 minutes, really. But we, we selected five people, didn't we, from the sector who we think are the big voices, the big hearts, the people with the big passion, the intellectuals and the influencers in the FE research space. And today's guest is one of those people. Um, so we've had David Powell, his podcast has been released, it's worth a listen. We had uh, Catherine Man Mannering, or Manning, Manning, can't remember her name. Uh, that's due to be released soon. She's from the Education and Training Foundation. Um, Gary Husband from the Association for Research and Post-Compulsory Education. We're trying to pin down Sam Jones, we will do eventually. And then making up the fifth in that heavyweight, heavyweight of people, is today's guest and I'm going to describe her. So she is a writer, she is a speaker, she's a coach, she's a culture changer. She's very much an advocate of well-being um, and empowerment for people in the sector. She's um, all over digital engagement. She's a thinking environment um, expert and enthusiast. She is award-winning and she is a nomad. So today's special guest is Lou Mycroft. Hello, both of you. What a brilliant intro. I can't live up to that. I'm going to have to try and live up to that. <laughs> it was, I, I quite like the big smile when, uh, when the award winning was mentioned as well. That was good. <laughs> well, we were both award winnings, weren't we, on the same day? So that was even better. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to hand over to Alistair to get the ball rolling today. Well, we're going to jump straight in with, it's, I suppose, quite a big question, really, um, and, and a good one to start with. And it's just thinking about um, what your vision for the future is, and kind of obviously within that sort of FE type environment, and for FE research as a whole as well. So I wonder if you can get, share some thoughts on that one. I can, and, and the pretty informed thoughts, not just me banging on, because I'm just um, coming to the end of writing up my PhD, and... Um, 
that's all about reimagining, in fact, community education. But what 400 people nearly have told me about is the whole of FE. And what comes out of, I've been analysing um, about 60,000 words. And what comes out of that 60,000 words is values. People are concerned with values, with humanity, with treating one another better, with treating one another differently, and with connecting in different ways to the world around us. And where FE research comes into that is fundamentally shifting the role of the teacher towards research, towards a sort of brokerage, bringing people togetherness, relationship building, opening up of spaces role, um, where research is absolutely at the heart. And in, in terms of community education in particular, that then is research that absolutely reaches out into the community and informs the curriculum. So it's all coming together. And what's been really amazing about this is that's also what I think, but I just asked a really open question. I sent it out to people that I didn't know as well as people that I know. Um, and that is coming back. There's almost no dissent, Alistair. There is nobody in that 400 people saying, we want what we've got at the minute, nobody. So obviously that that's all about i suppose a bit of change and things but did you were you able to identify any of the challenges that surrounded that um for these people as well well we've got a huge monument haven't we which is you know education constructed in a way that nobody's ever stopped and thought about what it should look like really it's just grown brick upon brick upon brick from the first time you know an act was passed and kids went to school and um adult education as sort of you know followed that pattern and, and branched off so nobody's really thought about it. so it's a massive monument to dismantle huge amounts of people and huge amounts of money have got their power invested in that as well so the task is you know it's monumental this is a monument it's huge and for individuals actually it's a risky business isn't it sticking your neck out saying we can do things differently so collaborations such as the fe research movement joy fe which i'm also involved in the edge of futurists who you know joe and i won the award with that's got to be the way to go because nobody can do this on their own it's huge but it's got to be possible so that's a kind of a community focused way of driving everything forward really for you then Absolutely. It's not going to come from the top. And I say that with respect, knowing some people at the top, you know, Catherine Manning, it will be an amazing ally in this. People like David Russell, David Hughes at the top of the big organisations. These are good people, but they're locked into the monument. And the higher up you get, the harder it is, I think, to disentangle from that because you've got so much personally wrapped up in it, haven't you? So if the drive comes from us, I think we'll find we're, you know, we're knocking on doors where people are willing to listen, even if they don't know how to do anything about it. Like a, a kind of critical mass of, of change, really, on that. Well, I can see you nodding away. And it's really Absolutely. Good. Okay, well, I'll pass over to Jo because I know she's got some more, um, more things to ask you and move on from that, as you started to mention. Yeah. yeah, look how you, you, you got me in gently there, didn't you? Just one or two. Normally, interviewers do it the other way around. They ask you a couple of easy questions to start <laughs> off with. 
that's not what we're about. No, clearly. We do the hard stuff. Um, actually, I'm going to jump to a question I'd sort of penned for asking you later, but it's so relevant now. Um, you know, we recently saw the Association of Learning Technologies report came out, and in it they identified 10 hashtags that were kind of active and uh, like um, hashtag JoyFE, UKFE chat, FE research meet, Brewed FE. That's four of the 10 that they named. All of them, if we looked at them, and I don't know whether anybody commented on this, were hashtags that had grassroots origins. None of them were about organisational led, I don't think. I don't think any of them were. So my question is, what impact do you think movements, if we call them that, movements like that are having? So the informal stuff like um, those I've just described, um, as well as the more formal spaces like AP Connect or Sunset, you know, what, what, what kind of impact are those grassroots activities having on the world of FE research? Um, I think it's an ecology. So there needs to be difference in there. And the grassroots movements are having a really huge impact. I think influencing up. So the very fact that there was that Alt-C report, the very fact that people thought that was a thing to do and funded it means that we are having an impact. Because actually, after that list, there was a great long list of other stuff, a lot of which was top down, which we don't, I don't, I've never heard of most of them, to be honest. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but clearly there was sort of putting the label communities of practice on, on a closed group. We are open. And that means that we're always drawing new ideas, new thinking in from the periphery. Years ago, when Laven Wenger wrote that book about communities of practice, that's what they envisaged. It was never a top-down thing. It was always that sort of, well, they didn't use the term, but rhizomatic way of changing things. And I think it was happening already. It, it accelerated during lockdown. And the people who got up, got on with things, made things happen, were the people in these grassroots collaborations where they drew strength from unity of people maybe they're not even met you know but they were part of a movement with the danger i think is and this is a direct appeal to leaders of fe who may be listening to this the danger is that you see this happening you think we're brilliant and we certainly i certainly feel appreciated and you decide to fund it and in funding it, you decide almost unwittingly, you start tidying it up and you start organising it. And maybe, you know, you decide to put some people in post who are responsible for it and it shifts. And what's happening there is you start re-territorialising that space and it's harder for us to do the creative stuff. Now, I don't know the answer but I do know the pathway and the pathway is for us to talk about this. And if you like what we're doing, and I suspect that you do, let's talk about how you can support that because 
One of the interesting things is I meet all sorts of amazing people in all of these constellations, some of whom I think <clears throat> will go on to be principals and leaders in all sorts of different ways. But for most of us, that, that's not where we're going or want to go. The, the, there's so much leadership of ideas through these constellations that incorporating them just puts them in a cage and I know I'm sounding like a proper anarchist but I do think there's a middle way I think in education in FE but in you know in education as a whole we're very backward and actually if you look at the world of commerce enterprise social enterprise people are finding ways to work which are much more complex and much more suited to now and much more like what we're doing. So that was a long answer, but the short answer is, I think we're having so much influence that we can end up finding ourselves trussed up in a corset if we're not careful. Mm. That's my crystal ball view. I have, yeah. you know, I have no insider info. Mm. Okay. Um, but I Alistair and I were going to ask you about Joy FE and Ideas Room. So do you want to go first, Alistair? Or? Yeah, I, um, I'm quite keen to ask you about the Ideas Room, really. So I was listening to your podcast you did with <laughs> Mike Chitty, um, and uh, you accompanied me while cleaning the kitchen, actually, if you, if you wanted to know that. Um, and uh, I was really enjoying it, actually, and I've recommended that my, my wife listens to it as well. There's some really important bits that came out. Um, but obviously you talked quite a bit about the Ideas Room in there. and I'll be quite honest and kind of put my hands up here and say, I don't really know much about it. I know Joe said it's a great thing and I know she's kind of um, run some um, ideas around for things with the podcast and, and got feedback, but actually quite ignorantly, I, I don't know much about it. So, you know, fill me in with, with kind of all the details of that, that I'm, I might've missed so far. I will. And um, I've got to say that just today, Natekla um, published on their language issues, um, WordPress blog, a piece by, Isla Flood, who's a colleague in the Joy of e, um, which absolutely captures the magic of the ideas room as well as what you do. So if anybody's listening and fancies reading that, I can really recommend it. The ideas room is um, an application of the thinking environment. So the thinking environment is a set of processes I use in my work in all sorts of different ways. And it develops skills around um, precision in articulating what you want to say, being succinct, in listening um, and also in um, you know really working out your ideas through silence not having to um, not not being under pressure that somebody's going to interrupt you there's no interrupting so what happens in an ideas room is that everybody rocks up into a zoom space anybody is welcome and um, the facilitator and we take it in turns asks a question and it's always the same question. It is, how are you? Because it's really important to acknowledge humans, you know, say, really, we're saying what matters to you. And then we ask a question, which is, how do you want to use this time to, what is it, Joe? How do you want to use the time to explore your idea tonight or something like that? I've forgotten the actual word. It's always the same. I've not done it for a couple of weeks. Other facilitators have been doing it. And then we do a thinking round, which is just a round, really, except that you can talk for as long as you want, but we ask you to co-manage the time. So you're part of it. You're not being infantilized by a whistle blowing or being moved on or anything. And um, so we ask you to be succinct and you're not going to be interrupted. And so people will say, typically, 
you know, about a third of the room, I would say, will have an idea and they might say, I want to really think through. Steph might say, I've got the boot camp on Thursday. I want to really think it through. Joe might say, I've got a few ideas for the podcast. I wouldn't mind thinking through. And then other people will say, I just want to listen. And that feels like a generous act and it is a generous act. But also we find in the listening, you have lots of ideas as well. So at the end of that round, the facilitator says, let's go around again, just really quickly and choose. So we've got three suggestions on the table. I want to work with X and X on Y. I don't mind where I go, da, da, da. And then we go off into breakout rooms. The thinking environment continues. In a breakout room, you might have two people having a dialogue. What do you think? What do you think? No interruption, but being really clear when you've finished. A few people together might do something called a time to think council. So Joe might say, I really want a council. I've got this idea. I want to just present it. I want your perspectives on it. Or you may just do rounds. And we have, I think, probably about half an hour for that. And people are good. They stick to the time. They make sure that everybody gets a say. And then we come back and just do a final closing round. That's the structure. What comes out of that, I think, is courage confidence and the appreciation of others that means that after that people go away and they work up these ideas the same idea might come back a few times in different iterations it might fly might die because sometimes you know it's not the time is it um but it's just glorious and i promise everybody ends up feeling more energized than when they go in even on a wednesday evening it's great. And we invented it, you know, collectively. We invented it. It didn't exist before. We just combined these thinking environment processes into this thing that really works. Well, I'll definitely try and come along and, and at least start to listen to, to begin with. Um, and I quite like the fact that you said the listening is so important because I find myself, and, and it's a bit of a kind of cheesy line, but with the students reminding them that we've got twice as many ears as we have mouths uh, because listening is important as well. So. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And, and I'll certainly come along and, and find out a bit more about that. So oh, we'd love that. We'd love that. And most people come in and listen first. Most people do that and learn to listen, you know, and actually, um, once you've, I will say that once you've been in a, an ideas room or any thinking environment, you'll find work meetings just irritate the hell out of you. <laughs> it already feels like that sometimes anyway but i shall i shall pass joe over now because i know she wants to to kind of oh. dig in a bit more with the other questions so. yeah i know he's not he's not saying but he did see that as you laying down the gauntlet for men to be in that space you know in the in the in, in, when obviously when you speak speaking to mike chitty you were saying about not many men had come at the time of course they have since haven't they yeah, we've had a few men since, which is absolutely brilliant. And we did it never set out to be a female-only space. That I don't think we do anything particularly that is gendered. And, and we always, you know, when we have men come into the room, we always, I always like ask them afterwards, is there something? Is there something that's a bit, you know, the tone's not right? And actually, what I get back is, it, what we're putting out isn't gendered. So I'm just really interested. Um, by why more men are not coming, but it's cool. It looks like the doors are starting to open to blokes. Perhaps, perhaps once one of you know, once you know that there'll be another guy in there, that might make it easier. Um, so obviously that was um, brought to life by Joy FE. So probably worth you talking a bit about Joy FE. 
Yeah, well, it, 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 um, it started um, literally on the, I think, the Saturday when we knew that there was a lockdown coming. So I, I'll never forget the date because the Friday when the pub shut was my birthday, which seemed a bit unfortunate. But um, on the Saturday, um, I'd been having, you know, some interaction with Steph Wilkinson. Um, not huge, not hugely, but we'd started to, you know, have regular sort of chats and catch ups. And she just called me and said, you know, this is happening let's do something let's do something that's positive and I'd already been doing quite a bit of work around the ethics of joy I did a TED talk which you came to thank you Joe and um, last autumn in Doncaster so she knew that I was really into this joy idea and she said let's do a broadcast 7am she's only for about half an hour and I was like god what are we going to talk about for half an hour I was thinking like 10 minutes or so um, but we went on that first Monday morning and it just felt really natural. We never had much of a plan. It always just emerged, the chat between us. And we noticed that people were, you know, they were tuning in. And I think we all felt really lost during those early days of lockdown. Um, Steph at the time was uh, director of teaching and learning in a a huge college um, so they were doing all the sort of going online stuff I'd got this view you know people I was in touch with hearing things about what was happening um, and and that started it really um, we, we had a little whatsapp group of people who were supposed regular listeners and who were also informing the content through the, the dialogue we were having it seems like um, it, it, it took a while but it, it all happened in within a week we'd got a magazine you know within a fortnight we'd invented the ideas rooms and we held ideas rooms during those Easter holidays every day so it happened really really quickly and that there was suddenly this energy between initially between me and Steph but then between me Steph and the listeners and then the listeners became part of Joy FE so that now we just all muck in together but we're not um we're not a group and we will say for shorthand to each other oh it's lovely being part of this group but we're not a group because when you say you're a group you close the door and the door is open you know always open and new people are joining in and getting involved all the time because it's a constellation and some of the people who were really involved in the early days, they, you know, they've taken a step back over the summer to do other things. But when the time's right, they'll, they'll come and get involved in projects again. So that's what I really love about it. There's no clicky feel. And I'm really, I run Slimming World Groups for three years. I know what a click feels like and I know how to stop one happening. So I'm really sensitive to stuff like that. Does that describe it adequately at the minute anyway? Yeah. And it will grow and expand, I'm sure. Yeah, it does. I'm looking over. We've not done this format before where we're kind of taking it in turns to ask a question. I don't know how it's not. Come on, Alistair, step up now. You're <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. she, she does, she does um, drive me hardly. Yeah, I can she, see that. If you, if you haven't seen it, she's, um, she's got me a mug on it and it, it says um, that uh, she's the boss, really. That's what it says. Um, so <laughs> Now, I've got another question here on the list to, to uh, sort of moving away from those environments, um, which is about understand that you lead an ETF program for advanced practitioners um, and uh, the aspects of, of kind of the opportunities for research and things like that. Um, what's come out of that for you and, and what are the features of the program and, and what's going to be happening in the coming year? Because I'm guessing it's going to be very different to uh, um, times before with with. COVID changing things as well? 
well, interesting. Funny you should say that because actually the bit that I particularly lead on get involved in, and you know, I oversee some of the other stuff, but the bit that I'm really into is the communities of practice bit, which has grown year on year, was a small part of the program in the first year. Um, and, and has, you know, grown, we, we will, we're advertising for a hundred um, people to join the communities of practice this year. So of course, that is also just the work that I do as a nomad, you know, I'm opening up spaces, they are very open spaces. So a lot of the work happens publicly, um, on Twitter, publishing, um, half of the people who join us will be experienced advanced practitioners who now are either amplifying their own work or amplifying the work of others. And these have been the change agents. I mean, I call them the engine room of change, but these have been the absolute movers and shakers who have made it crack during uh, lockdown. Often very sort of digitally savvy, even if they weren't at the start of being involved with the advanced practitioners project. Honestly, the first year, you know, even getting people to go on Twitter was hard work. By the second year, I didn't just, I didn't ask. I said, you know, it's an expectation because we want you to get out there. So I've got, I've got, I've pushed more, more, more with each year that's gone. So in some senses, it will look a little similar, but every year it's got tilted more towards this communities of practice side of things. And one of the things that we really realized last year was, um, the, the, one of the strands is uh, of the communities of practice are for newer APs or APs who haven't had training. So it's more, although it all happens online, we try and meet up if we can, like at least once, because that that helps build community if you've actually been face to face. But one of there's a sort of more recognizable online learning program which is about what what an ap is and um everyone does a small scale quality insurance uh, insurance quality improvement project why is that not research what's the point of doing a project if you're not going to research it and so this year we're trying to blend in more of a research focus we can't make everybody do research because actually that's not what the ETF are paying us to do. So, we, and it's not part of their research strand. And, and, and sometimes it's also not part of their leadership strand, though it's clearly a leadership program. So we push in, we're always pushing. And if Catherine's listening to this, she will be laughing because she's, she's the person we push, you know? But, um, so we're hoping to, I don't want to use the word formalize, but help people identify when they're making any sort of inquiry, it is research. What we don't have, I think, easily available in the sector, and Joe and I were part of a research roundtable um, at the start of the summer that, that considered this. We don't have an easily available slotting in place for someone who says, I want to make an inquiry. I'd really like to call it research. What are the things I need to do in order for it to stand on its own feet as research? And then as part of the same conversation, all those FE practitioners who do research, how can we make the data that comes out of that robust enough to be shareable with academics then from HE who 
can use that data and look at patterns longer term. So we've got some knitting up to do, I think, in the research sector. But I think AP Connect can really be part of that. And one of the things that we're going to be doing is putting on events. And we're very clear that we don't want to just add events into a busy events program. So we're going to be talking, hopefully, with you, Joe, about us offering some energy um, and people to FE Research Meet and we're going to be we're working with Steph Wilkinson around the sort of AP more regional networks and um, so again we're using the opportunity of that project to try and weave a few strands together that everybody wants to weave together but it's quite hard to find the capacity isn't it? Yeah quite okay. quite a challenge but you certainly you're certainly embracing it anyway so. oh big time yeah go go hard i'll go home really and, and, and i truly believe that if i can't if i don't feel i'm contributing something to changing fe i'm off to do something else and i you know i all i've always felt that so yes big challenge oh right so talking of that then yeah. one of the uh maybe we should say a little bit about um the, the, what we what I euphemistically called adult conversation. Oh yeah, I love that. Makes snigger snigger every time. Yeah. Um. So that came out of the ideas very much, Lee, and that is an attempt to go hard or go home. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to articulate a bit about, you know, what adult conversations might become or what what it is? Yeah, the adult conversations alliance. In fact, Joe, we got as far as I think, didn't we? Um, <laughs> adult conversations. Yeah. So. You know, we know, don't we, that adults get a raw deal in FE these days. And, and whether that is adults on a programme in an FE college or, you know, uh, you have an adult uh, community programme as well, Joe, I know at your place, or whether they're learning in the community or whether it's workplace learning, I don't care. Adults always seem to be bottom of the pile. And, and a direct, another direct challenge, you know, go hard or go home, is that community education, where a lot of adults um, go, are, is not, doesn't have the sort of voice to speak up for it as colleges do. So we're always limping along behind. And my background is as a community worker, which is community education. But again, somehow community development or youth work isn't seen as community. Why is that? You know, so there's all of this sort of schism. And there are commissions, you know, last year was 100 years, wasn't it, of adult learning. There are all these commissions, but I don't see what happens. And, and I don't see, you know, anything changing. And I see adults getting a, a, a more and more of a raw deal. Mel Lenehan, who's principal of Fircroft College, um, which is a college for adults, and I worked um, at Northern College um, similarly um, in my career within a college. She, they did a survey at the start of lockdown. 40% of their students are, di are in digital poverty. They, they're not able to engage online. So we've got a number of problems here. And people might be talking about it, but nothing is, is, is coming out of that. So a few of us with some energy have started to form around that. And how do you form a constellation? Rebecca Solnit says, we're given the stars, right? They're already there. And it's up to us to join them up 
into a constellation. And that's what Adult Conversations is, despite, and it would be Joe's like, <laughs> Joe's suggestion, um, and I just love it. So we've, we've got some ideas, which we're continuing to work up in the ideas room of how to take that forward. But we need to get the sort of energy going that's around FE research. We need to get that sort of energy going in a separate constellation around adults. Um, I'm not going to rehearse here all the, 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 um, the reasons why that's not happening. Digital poverty is one. The leadership of the sector is 100% the other. And also, who runs community education services? Well, it's quite often what's left of them. Local authorities, and they've got a lot more on their plate at the minute than, you know, just focusing on education in a college. So that's where we're at with that. And I don't know if you want to say any more, Joe, about, you know, the ideas that you were formulating together with us. Well, we're going, we're going to, aren't we, organise some conversation spaces, but regional, because often the, the adult and community education looks very different in different geographical regions. So we want to make sure, even if they're digital, they're kind of regionally rooted uh, to capture what is really happening and to try and shift that disconnect between what might be talked about in a commission to what's actually going on in your local community centre, you know. You know, interesting today. Actually, we've we've been hearing all the stuff, haven't we, about A levels and um, GCSEs and CAGs and whatever, whatever. And I raised a question today and said, "Oh, what's happening with my functional skills results for adults?" Oh, silence. It's it's again bottom of the pile. <laughs> Still don't know. Something will happen. No, I think so. We spent a lot of years, didn't we, in FE, thinking we were the Cinderella. You know, adults is our Cinderella. Mm -hmm. And we're not, we're not doing our housekeeping, I don't think, so we're not looking after that part of the sector. Mm -hmm. no. um, one of the questions that I, I um, get asked, and get, sometimes get asked to speak to uh, this question, so I, I'm going to ask you, um, it's why leaders and teachers but initially why leaders in FE don't engage necessarily with research about the sector now my um my response has been multiple and varied and not least to say well in fact some do but what, what what's your response to that question why leaders may not uh, engage with research whatever that might mean there's something about doing an honest piece of research which is which makes you very vulnerable and no matter what your methodology because if you do research right it has an uncertainty doesn't it you don't know what's going to come out the other end if you do know then you're wasting everybody's time and public money doing it because you already know and that sort of research drives me wild and I think that, in fact, I know that it is really difficult to be a leader in FE and to show and to be a person who shows vulnerability. And so you will say it's time and this and that and the other. But at the end of the day, that's the thing. And I can count on one hand the leaders, top of the pile leaders I know who would have the courage and strength to make themselves vulnerable by setting out on a project that they don't already know the end of. Mm. Okay. Right. 
on that so, note, I'm you know, back yeah that, that sort of leads on to, to kind of a bit more really on that question is if, if the leaders are perhaps um fearing being vulnerable do you think that's perhaps why some um teachers and lecturers are perhaps shying away from partaking in research as well and you know should they be kind of crossing that that boundary do you think think um, that this is a real difficult one isn't it in 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 all the years that I've done CPD let's call it CPD I've always disappointed many people because despite teachers saying oh don't tell me how to teach actually they come along to CPD for hints tips and tricks and tell me how to teach basically and and that comes from a place of often fear, scarcity, because there is never enough time, there's precarity of contracts and all of that stuff. So actually to open up your mind to think about doing something messy is really difficult. And research, if it's any good, has got to be messy as well. If they are then, if they don't see leaders modeling research then why would you because they're not doing it and they're on 80 grand a year why should i and then it becomes an issue for the union doesn't it of you know I've, i know there's a couple of colleges where genuinely leaders have tried to introduce a research culture and they just haven't got the buy-in and it's like what you want us to do this as well you know i'm already working 70 hours a week and tying myself in knots and i don't even know if i'll have any teaching hours next time you know you dump me next term or whatever and you want me to do research as well so so i think that is problematic and also we stitched up like turkeys aren't we in the amount of admin and bureaucracy it's hard to find space Plus, there are very powerful voices that seem to tell us all the time that we can only research a certain kind of thing, like that involves looking inside the brain, you know, the cognitive stuff. That's really interesting. And if that's your bag, knock yourself out. But there's many other areas of research which are just a bit unfashionable, I think. It's got to change because I can't see a future for FE if it doesn't. We can't carry on doing what we're doing because it's not working. And I, I think less and less people now are thinking it is working. So to do something different, having research at the heart of that and teachers as researchers, for me, is a magnificent opportunity. And there will be teachers who just want to carry on doing what they've always done. Same as there's been teachers during lockdown who have just not wanted to engage with the digital stuff, have done it half-assed or, you know, have done it with an unwillingness which has meant students didn't engage. Every workforce has got people like that and they just have to perhaps reconsider whether teaching in a new century, in a new way, in a post-pandemic way is going to be right for them. Sometimes you just can't bring people along, can you? No, that's the that's a nice way of exploring it. I like that. Okay, is there anything else you've got, Joe? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, asking for a friend, but <laughs> why should you know? Why should people? Let's just imagine people like me or people like Alistair um, do a PhD. <laughs> what, what's in it for them? Why should they bother? 
So if I tell you that my PhD that I'm going to be handing in my first draft of in two weeks, um, that's first complete finished draft in full, um, it's cost me 12 grand and six years of my life and I've worked full time and cared for parents and, you know, raised my son in amongst all of that. And it's still 100% been worth it. Um, and why it was worth it, why it's been worth it is it's turned me into a thinker. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, speaking as I'm speaking, joy of fee, all of that stuff wouldn't have happened without the PhD. There's nothing, this is going to make me look like a complete dick, but there's nothing that I have said here to you today that I can't trace back to deep roots in French philosophy. It has made me a thinker. It's made me see the world differently because until I started doing the PhD, I only saw there is so much structure in our world that's invisible that we are regulated by and we can't even see it because we're so used to it being there. I had to do the PhD to start questioning that stuff. And I actually started off on an EDD pathway with Huddersfield Uni. Um, and I transferred a couple of years ago to PhD, mainly because, if I'm honest, people in my town, I come from Mexborough, and people in Mexborough don't know what an ED is, but they know what a PhD is or they have some idea. And I didn't want to spend 12, 12 grand on something that my mum didn't understand what it was. But, and that, two, that, that first sort of two years of taught sessions on the EDD, I needed that. I found them so hard. I had no idea what people were talking about. Like many working class people, my education had been patchy. You know, I went to a crap school and there was, there's all sorts of just stuff that I don't know that's great gaps in my knowledge, but it helped me be confident enough to overcome that. So all of those reasons are worth six years and 12 grand. And I don't really care whether I get it or not. I mean, if, I, if they failed me, I would be really upset, but it wouldn't be the end of the world not to call myself doctor or have the velvet hat. It's not for that. That learning I've done, that thinking, all the activism that has come out of that. And, and, and that's what's making it so difficult to write up because there's a there's a there's a cycle between the stuff I've learned, the stuff I've done act as an activist, then how that's reinformed the PhD. It's going round and round, but nobody can take that away from me, and it's been worth every penny. To get the velvet cap and call myself doctor at the end of it is a bonus. If I'd had some funding along the way, and I have to say, hands up, Huddersfield Uni did pay. Um, a thousand towards my fees in the first two years otherwise it would have cost more um, because I still ran their program at Northern College so if you can get funding for it it's a bonus if you can get study leave it's a bonus you know but still doing it the hard way and it couldn't have been harder it's been worth it is that persuasive enough oh my goodness what do you think Alistair <laughs> I'm well, actually, I, the way I was listening to, to Lou saying them was it's just an investment in you and your head and yeah, numbers and letters and floppy hats and all the bits in the middle. Not really any different to enjoying a, a good book like we've been doing over the summer and kind of learning for the pleasure of it, really. So, and yeah, certainly convincing in terms of, of investment in self, I think, more than anything.
absolutely absolutely and you know i don't want a job in a university either you know it's not i'm not heading towards that it, that investment in head is just such a beautiful way to put it i shall remember that and on that note then i think we should say our goodbyes do you um yeah i think hey you've come in at one minute under the 50 minutes yes oh no no i wanted to beat david powell didn't i and i failed <laughs> Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. I know you're in the last throes of your PhD write up, so it you know it's really generous of you to give us your time today. Thank you. You're yeah, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure and lovely to properly meet you, Alistair. Yeah, it's been great and uh, really enjoyable to, to listen to you as well. It's been brilliant. It's been brilliant. Nobody will ever give me a contract again after this is published. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Thank See you very you much. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the FE Research Podcast. You can follow the conversations on Twitter using the hashtag FE Research Podcast. Thanks for listening and hopefully you can join us again soon.